Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak. As you speak to us, we might be able to see the grace that you give to us, your children, when we listen to you. Thank you for this life of the Apostle Paul and how you met him in an unexpected way and changed him and how you meet us as well. So this morning we cry out for your word to take root in our hearts. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. We're in the third week of the season of Epiphany or the um, Sundays after the Epiphany event, and we're reminded in these um, in this season of the the reality of Jesus's ministry breaking in before us and us and appearing before us and us getting to understand and apprehend his ministry to us. The Bible, as you may know, is pretty silent on the the younger years of Jesus. There's three instances: his birth his circumcision and dedication at the temple, which is eight days after his birth. And then, of course, at age 12, he um, decided to take a road trip apart from his parents. And there's a whole interesting story in Luke 2 about that. That's it. Until 30 years, the Bible is relatively silent on his growing up days. Um, And yet then, in this season of Epiphany, we look at how Jesus' ministry births forth, bursts forth on the scene, and we get to apprehend what people had waited and longed for for centuries. Today, we're looking at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 and a changed life. And isn't it amazing the powerful witness of a changed life to us when we hear someone who's experienced radical change in the story of of the Apostle Paul is really important for us for several reasons, but firstly, because it reminds us that no one is too far gone. You'll see this come true in just a minute. And I'd like to just flesh out maybe a structure for us this morning about this passage using three words. All I didn't plan it this way. It worked out all with the prefix un. In Acts chapter 26, we see an unlikely person the Apostle Paul. You yourselves may feel, I'm an unlikely person. We see an unexpected encounter that he has with Jesus, a life-changing encounter. And then we see the undeserving reality of God's grace. So let's dive right in and see this at the first, unlikely. Um, Paul had his name changed, as you heard in the reading. His name was Saul. And he was a Jewish rock star in his day. He would have been a top 10 leader under the age of 40 in a magazine. In, um, in his day, he had advanced and progressed so fast and so quick that he was of great renown. In fact, one magazine a few years ago ranked the Apostle Paul, I think wrongly, above the person of Jesus as the single most influential person in human history because of his message of the gospel and what it's done all over the world. In Acts chapter 26, you're welcome to turn there. 
Saul, or I'm sorry, Paul, after his name is changed, is standing before King Agrippa. King Agrippa is Herod's grandson. Paul very well knew the life of Herod, and now he's standing before his grandson, also a ruler of Palestine. And in a very amazing thing, Paul is trying to persuade the king of Palestine to believe in this person of Jesus. Think about the evangelistic opportunity that Paul has. But as you heard read, and and we didn't read this section in verse 4, but listen to Paul. He says, the Jewish people know all the way I have lived ever since I was a child. Is that famous in his culture? From the beginning of my life into my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and they can testify if they're willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So raise your hand if you have graduated or will graduate in a class of less than 100 people. So the, the thing about graduating in a class of 100 people, especially if you've gone to school that entire time, is everyone knows your dirt. They've picked on you. They've watched you undergo massive changes. They know all about you. I graduated with 76 people, and then I escaped and got out. Um, So Paul was very well known in his culture and in Jerusalem, not only because of his progression or his success religiously, but because they knew him from a young age. He was known for his intensity And for Paul, being a Pharisee meant that he was an expert of experts in the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew it better than anyone. He knew the law of God, and he knew the story of God. He excelled at religiosity, in other words. Listen to his resume he shares in Philippians 3. I'll put this on the screen. He shares this. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, put in parentheses, brag, I have more. How would you like him at your Christmas party? (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day. That's Hebrew of Hebrew traditions. Of the people of God, the chosen people of God, according to the scriptures, of the people of God, Israel was chosen to be a light to the nations, as we heard. Of the tribe of Benjamin, rock on. In fact, when the Israel tribes would go into battle, they would let Benjamin go first because they were the biggest and the baddest. In fact, there was a saying, they would step aside and say, oh, you first, Benjamin. So Paul's giving us his pedigree, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, Pharisee, an expert. As for zeal, what we call today passion, persecuting the church. You heard what he did. As for righteousness based on the law, if I could earn my way to God, faultless. That's pretty braggadocious, isn't it, of a resume? Let me try to summarize. Here's the Apostle Paul. He had wealth and status. He was also a Roman citizen. He was educated, Pharisee. He was well-versed in Um, Not only Hebrew learning, but philosophy. He could quote poets from other philosophies and religions. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had a family name. 
He was motivated. He hated the Christians. I'll get that into a second. But we're going to hear how in an instant his life was changed. His conversion would seem very unlikely because of his resume. So think of it this way. What if Nancy Pelosi today became a Republican? Or what if Mitch McConnell switched to the Democratic Party? If you know those two names in politics, it would be very unlikely, right? In fact, when people have the most to lose, listen to this, they are the least likely to change. Most of us make small incremental changes in life, but a few of us make radical changes or deep changes. In fact, for most of us, our battle is usually our budget, our waistline, an addiction, or some usually annoying behavior, probably to others. So how do people change? How do you change? Let's flesh that out for just a second before we understand the great change that the Apostle Paul unlikely took. First of all, there's surface level. There's behavior. You start acting differently. My dad used to have to spray me with a water bottle to get me out of bed. He did. And I've used it on some children. They'll go unnamed. My mom said you could march a marching band through my room and I wouldn't wake up. I still have that gift. But now in life, I have so much to do, so much responsibility that I wake up at 5 a.m. easily. I'm ready, well, somewhat easily. I'm ready to go. If I oversleep, it's disaster and things bad happen. And so it's amazing how just a little bit of behavior change can happen. Most of us experience that kind of change. The second level of change is belief. You start believing something you haven't previously believed before. To grow as a Christian, you have to start believing things that maybe you didn't hold them before, as Zach shared with us. The relief of shame and guilt in life, the resurrection of Jesus, the need to repent, the authority of the scriptures. I can trust this book called the Bible with my whole life. And the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in me, making me to look more like Jesus. You have to start believing those sorts of things to have change. But the deepest change is what we call worldview change. This is the third level. Most people have little time for deep change. Drew and I have challenged each other $100 over who will lose the most BMI, body mass index, by July 1st. And it's hard for us because it now means exercise, you know, not eating Chick-fil-A twice a day, but cutting down to once a day or none a day. Um, Drew, I had three salads yesterday. I'm out for you, man. I've got you. Um, It's easy to change and adjust your uh, behavior just a little bit. Uh, I could eat celery for a month and lose a lot of weight. But a worldview change would be to change so deep that I completely view eating, exercise, and health vastly different than I view it today. It's a shift, a complete shift. There's a picture of a man named Immanuel Kant. Some of you know him. He's a German philosopher, theologian. Um, He's the guy who coined the phrase Weltanschauung, which means worldview. If you hear that term worldview today, he brought that to us. It's a perspective on things. It's, It's what is reality. 
what you think about reality. It goes deep under the surface. It's not just behavior or beliefs. It's actually the ingrained practices and habits that you have in life informed by what you think is true, what's real. Um, So physically, I am 49 years old today. Yes, my birthday. Thank you very much. You can give presents later. Um, You know, I have more weight and less hair. I cannot do what I used to do. I could easily crank out 70-hour work weeks and rebound very quickly, take trips. I have slowed considerably in life. I'm waiting for my membership to AARP. I think it's a year away, and I'll get 15% discounts at Wendy's. But the place where I've changed the most is my view of reality, my worldview. I am not what I do. I am not what I own or what I know. This is why I love John Newton's quote. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I still am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's the power of deep change. Martin Luther King had a powerful effect on the change of this world. He said this, I have a dream that my four little children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I recently saw a company in Ohio posting racist signs. Some of us still haven't changed. You see, worldview change is deep and it's hard. For someone to really change, it is a deep overhaul of the way that they see reality. And that reality affects the way they see others. Most people are open to change, by the way, on their worldview by their 25th birthday. By age 25, most people have made up their mind on reality and the way things are. Most, not all. I'd say this. This is the average worldview of a person who lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. People I talk to and interact, especially those outside of the church, and, but yet those in the church. Here's their worldview. It's three parts. I want nice stuff, new stuff, and better stuff. Number two, I want to be happy in life. And happiness is defined usually by access to comfort and security. And three, the greatest force in this world is love, usually familial or romantic love. But a worldview shift would turn those three things upside down. It would say this, this is not the only life you live. You don't have to own it or have it or get it to be happy. In fact, often the more I get, the less happy I am. Secondly, instead of being happy, a shift would be, I want to be holy. I want to be the person who God loves deeply more than having security or comfort in this world. And lastly, the love of God is the greatest thing in this world. That's a radical shift, and it takes deep change to get it. This guy Saul's life changed drastically when he met Jesus. Stop for a minute and think, has my life ever radically shifted? Did it change, and has it remained changed? 
How have you changed? Without a shift about how we see reality, not just behavior and beliefs, we experience little change over the long haul of our lives. Paul is a very unlikely person because as this rock star, superstar, wealthy person, he had much to lose. In fact, there's a minority report on Paul's life that he was a married man and his conversion to Jesus Christ meant he lost his family. Here's what he says in verse 7 of Philippians as well. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. Think about that. Whatever I had that I gave up to shift, to change, because I met this person of Jesus Christ, I consider them loss, rubbish. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. That's why some people think he even lost his family. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So here's the Apostle Paul standing before the king of Israel, and he's a changed man. Make no mistake, his change was not fast. Sometimes we expect people to change and to change fast, quickly. Um, Just go through counseling appointments, and you'll see nothing's fast in life. In fact, by the time that we're reading this passage out of Acts chapter 26, this was 20 years after Paul's conversion after he was converted, he virtually he spent a, a little time doing some ministry, and then he virtually disappeared. Some people say eight years, 11 years. Some say as much as 14 years. He just packed up, and he went away. Why? He wrote so much of the New Testament, what was happening in him. I think what was happening in him is deep change, worldview shift change, not just behavior, not just beliefs, but the way he saw reality, his world was turned upside down by this unexpected encounter with Jesus Christ, which leads me to my second point, unexpected. Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Angela Kay and I were in Israel a year ago, and we were about 37 miles From Damascus, we had ridden on a car near the very road that the Apostle Paul had walked. Where was he going? As we heard in the New Testament reading, he was heading to Damascus to arrest Jesus' followers. Here's a religious zealot rock star who's about to go throw Christians in jail. And you heard what he said. Where they were condemned to death, he voted It's also believed that Saul was uh, present at the stoning of Stephen, one of the early leaders of the church. He witnessed it, and he approved it. Therefore, he's a murderer. So what was he doing? He was there to eliminate blasphemy. These new Christians were teaching that God is a man and that the Messiah had to suffer. And the real kicker of their offense And why Paul was so offended is what he says later in life when he writes this in the gospel in 1 Corinthians. I'll put that on the screen. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's go to the next slide. 
Jews demand signs, power, and Greeks look for wisdom. So let me explain that for just a second to understand the context of why Paul and many were so offended. You know, if you think about it rationally, the gospel is a pretty innocuous message, right? We're not saying take over anybody or shoot anybody or enslave anybody. The gospel actually denounces all of that stuff. It says, love your neighbor, forgive your enemy. So why is the gospel message so offensive? Why was Paul mad? Because if you somehow believe in your worldview or your reality that you are made right with God by what you do, the gospel is offensive to you. Because it says you cannot rescue yourself. You cannot save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. You can only adjust your behavior, but you cannot change something inside of you. The gospel message is offensive to you in that vein because it's saying you have no ability to do this. That's why the gospel message offends. Again, stepping back rationally, why would the gospel message be so offensive? Love your neighbors, be good, pray for those. But if you believe you're made right with God by what you do, the gospel message comes and it becomes an offense. And it's offense to these two groups of people, two representative groups. Jews who say it's about power. And Greeks who say it's about smarts. Both are offended by the gospel. Paul was deeply offended by this idea of this guy, Jesus, who died, no power, who was weak, he was humbled, he was supposedly God in, in flesh. It's offensive to him. And he said it's an abomination to true religion. Any religion that uses force is a false religion. So here's what Paul's doing, running around the countryside, persecuting people. Saul is an angry religious leader. He's committed to bowing these false teachers to the ground in the error of their ways so that God doesn't somehow judge Israel again for their waywardness. And here's an amazing verse that stands out of the Bible. Listen to this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Most people's objections to Christianity are excuses. It's primitive thinking. How do you know this is true? They're excuses. Most of their objections are a mask for something right here. I don't want to believe this. It's offensive to me. Jesus meets Paul in an unexpected way, and he calls him by his name twice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it's a dramatic occurrence, obviously. Listen to what uh, Saul, his name means to inquire or to ask. His name is changed then to Paul, which means little or short guy. Someone great, think about this, reduced to the name little person. 
Now, we rarely pick names for meaning. That's much more common with our friends in East African tradition. Your name is connected to some meaning. We like to just go through the list and see what name sounds good. It's interesting the name Beulah is not very popular among women today, right? You just don't hear and meet many Beulahs. So that's how we choose names. It's got powerful meaning behind it. Here's what Jesus did. He changed his name to Paul representative of the humility that is changing in his life. Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's life was changed by this personal encounter with Jesus Christ. God took an unlikely person and changed him deeply. He turned an unlikely person through a very unexpected encounter. And Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he's called an apostle, a firsthand witness to the resurrected Jesus. But through this unexpected encounter, Paul was sent to people he were thought undeserving of the grace of God. You see, all of Paul's life he had come to believe If you were not of the people of God, if you were a Gentile, you were unworthy of the grace of God. And there was tremendous hostility between the two. There's still tremendous hostility today. But listen to what Paul says later in life. Because he apprehended Jesus and saw the risen Lord and experienced him and his life was changed. Listen to what he says later about his own status or resume. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy Because I acted in arrogance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul would say this, and we say this occasionally on Sundays after we confess our sins. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full embrace. It's a reality shift, a worldview change. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Notice the change of resumes. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He really understood It wasn't the Gentiles who were the undeserving ones. It was him. Christian history is filled with people who are used by God to tell people they formally hated the good news. Paul, a Jew of Jews, is sent to the people 
he had spent his whole life hating to show them the plan of God. Think about the irony of that and the mercy of that. One of the preeminent reasons the Christian faith was compelling and winsome was the testimony of people who experienced change. In fact, a changed life is a powerful message to a people who don't like change. Is change possible for you? You may be sitting here this morning saying, I've had that change, but I'm not experiencing it today. Or I've actually never had that change. I've never had that shift. I've never had that encounter with Jesus where I realize who I truly am and who he truly is, and I cry out for him to rescue me. You may be wondering, is that kind of change possible? Well, there's an old saying, if you can make it in New York City, you can make it anywhere. If God can change a man like Paul, he can change me. And he can change you. The question is, do you really want to be changed? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.